All right, well, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3. So um, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and it's called Acts or Acts of the Apostles. And what it does is it tells us what took place from the time that Jesus goes to heaven for about the next 35 years. It gives kind of the history and the theology of the early church. And um, so there on your outline, you'll see it says Acts chapters 1 and 2, and I want you to write down 30 A.D., that was the year that Jesus, or the commonly held year that Jesus is raised from the dead. And uh, it's a commonly, you know, chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we've been through. That all took place in 30 AD. Now there's a time gap between chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 3. And so most would hold that about a year later in 31 AD we have Acts chapter 3. So we're going to, each week as we go through, give the timeline as to what's taking place. So the reason that's important is that the crowd that we're going to be looking at today is no longer going to be the crowd that we saw last week at Pentecost. That crowd has gone home, and uh, this is going to be a very different audience today. This is such a great story today. And um, the big question this week and every week is, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Many times what happens is that you and I get into a certain denomination, a a certain denominational perspective, and we get into that thinking. And what we do is we look at other groups and we kind of discount what they are saying, uh, maybe as they overemphasize certain things. And uh, instead of saying, what can we learn from them, we just completely write them off. And so I I thought today, you know, in in our camp, what we tend to do is we tend to read everything in the New Testament. When we talk about the gospel, you know, we say it was Jesus or God came to the earth as a man. He stepped into our place. He paid the price for our sins. He gave us the free gift of salvation so that we can have a relationship with him now and through all eternity. And that's certainly true. But the question is, is the gospel just about going to heaven? And so I I wanted to just share a couple of verses as we get into this today. Do you remember back in the Gospels where Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and he begins to read? And uh, there on your outline, I've put it there from Luke chapter 4, it says, Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel. And I put in parentheses good news because gospel just means good news. It's good news. So to the poor, now underline to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and you want to underline that, sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, if you come from a background, a certain uh, kind of church that our church would would uh, certainly be part of, one of the things that we would do, and certainly the church that I grew up in, we, we read this, and then the pastor pontificates on this, and he says, you were poor before a holy God. And you were held captive by your sin. You needed to be released from the bondage of that sin. Spiritually blind, needing somebody to open your spiritual eyes. I do that pretty good, don't I? (laughs) I've been there. (laughs) So 
And, and you know, then you sum it up by saying, but the good news is that Jesus came. And, and that is, that's very good news. That's all true. Everything there. But the problem with that interpretation is that it's all about salvation. And you can look this up later, but Jesus will elaborate and he gives two, two illustrations of uh, people who were not, it wasn't that they were going to heaven, they certainly were, but there was one person who received a physical healing and another person who received material blessing. That is, that, that God stepped in in a very difficult time. And so if the good news, he says, I've come to preach the good news to the poor, and that's the illustration that he gives just a few verses later. If you are poor, what would be good news? Well, good news would be that you don't have to be poor. You don't have to be poor. And if you were sick, what would be good news to you? Healing would be good news to you. Well, um, so, so maybe the gospel is more than just going to heaven. We read in the New Testament there on your outline a passage we're all familiar with. We don't normally have them connected together, but they are. And it's in Galatians. Paul is writing and he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And you want to underline that. Curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then in order that in Christ Jesus, and then you want to underline the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's you and I, who would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So when it talks about the curse of the law, you can look at a number of different places and it talks about the curses of the law. I put an address right there in that, in that passage. And in Deuteronomy 28, you can read that later on. But it comes under three categories. The first category is death. The second category, as you read it, would be poverty. And then the third category would be disease. And you can look that up later, sickness. And uh, so he says, we, he says, Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of the law, but then to turn around and give us the blessing of Abraham. Now, what's interesting is that Abraham is an Old Testament picture of what a New Testament believer is like. And so we're told that we receive the blessing of Abraham. But one of the interesting things, as you go through the book of Genesis and you see the story of Abraham, God doesn't talk to Abraham a whole lot about going to heaven. But what we do see is that Abraham happens to be blessed in three ways. And so if the curse of the law is death, sickness, poverty, uh, what we notice in Abraham's life is that he is a friend of God by faith and that he is you know, made right with God But then we also see that it's never recorded that Abraham is sick. And then not only that, but Abraham is made materially, he's materially blessed. As a matter of fact, I put a verse right there in your outline. And it says, Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So God blessed Abraham, not just in eternity, to go to heaven. There was something that God wanted to do in this life. And that was the blessing of Abraham. So Having said that, I want to give you a verse that reflects the heart of God. And right there on your outline, here's what it says. Let them say continually, the Lord be magnified who delights in the, what's that word? Prosperity. You didn't want to say it loud. Who delights in the prosperity of his servant. Are you a servant of God today? Okay, so... When I read that verse, do you say continually, blessed be the Lord, he delights 
in my prosperity. That's exciting. Praise the Lord for that. Or when it says, blessed be the Lord who delights in the prosperity of his servant. Does something inside of you get angry and you say, that's prosperity gospel. I don't buy into that. How you answer that question will determine how you read chapter 3 of the book of Acts. And it will determine what God is able to do in your life. So uh, let them continually say, the Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servant. So today, you and I are going to look at a miracle. This is going to be the first recorded miracle in the book of Acts, but it's not the first miracle in the book of Acts. Everybody, we're looking at chapter 3, verse 1, but I want you to go back to chapter 2, verse 43. Chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Does everybody see that? So there's a number of miracles, but there's one miracle that God said, I, I want this to be recorded as the first miracle after Jesus is raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit is given, the first one I want to be given in detail. It could be that the reason for this is that God wants to convey something to us. So let's see uh, what the Lord has to say to us today. Have I put you to sleep yet? Okay. Well, um, so it's been about a year, we would guess, give or take, between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. And so in verse 1 it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple about the ninth hour, uh, the hour of prayer. So uh, remember that Luke is writing this. He's writing to a Roman official who does not know how things work at the temple in Jerusalem, that that would be the hour of prayer. So uh, this hour of prayer is going to be about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. At this point, all of the believers are Jewish. And so what we're going to see is that from chapters 1 till 10, there's going to be a very gradual change from the, Jew, the, the believers being predominantly Jewish to them becoming predominantly Gentile. It's going to be a very, very gradual change. So they're, they're going to uh, the, the temple to pray. And one of the things that we find, and we highlighted last week, that prior to this event of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we saw last week, that the disciples really struggled with praying. Uh, you remember the night that Jesus is betrayed, and Jesus says, will you pray with me for an hour? And they keep falling asleep. But now what we see is this is just going to be a part of their lives. Things are going to be very different. Well, verses 2 and 3, it says, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb, and you want to just highlight that from, from, from birth, was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms, of those who are entering into the temple. But he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple and he began asking to receive alms. I love this. Uh, we we kind of miss this, but uh, at the time of prayer, this guy would be set down outside. And uh, this, this is the time that you want to be there because you realize people are going into the service and as they're going in, they want to go in and they want to pray. And we all feel a little bit guilty when we go to church or temple, and so here's somebody asking for some money, and we somehow deep down inside feel like if, if we give the guy a couple of bucks, maybe that'll put us in a little better position as, as we go in. Okay, am I the only person who's ever thought that? <laughs> it's not true, but, but we think that. So this is the way, this is the, if you're going to beg, that's the place that you want to be. So here's what we learn about this guy. 
He's in this condition from his mother's womb. And uh, what we see about him, and I want you to write this down, is that this man wants to be supported in his condition. But what we're going to see is that God wants to do so much more than just support him in his condition. God wants to change his condition. And uh, this story that we're looking at today is going to be a two-chapter story. We're going to look at chapter 3 today, but it continues in chapter 4. And in chapter 4 it says, and I put it there in your outline, it says, the man was more than 40 years old whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So this guy's, this has been a long time for this guy from birth. Verses 4 and 5, but Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. So here's Peter and John, they're going into the temple. They're sensing by the Holy Spirit that God wants to do something very significant in this man's life. There would be other people there. He wouldn't be the only person there who would be begging. And uh, it could very well be that Jesus walked by this man several times over the course of time. But on this particular day, God wants to do something very specific in this man's life. Verses 6 through 8. It says, but Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. And then I've underlined, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So this is the the first miracle that's recorded after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, typically, in, in the, you know, each, each camp of church has a different focus. And sometimes in our camp, or typically I would say in our camp, when you read a commentary uh, about this, it'll say something like this. So this comes from a commentary that I use, and uh, it, will, it will say this. It'll say, it's easy to see in this man an illustration of what salvation is like. He was born lame, and uh, we're all born unable to walk so as to please God. Uh, This man was also poor, and we as sinners are bankrupt before God, unable to pay the tremendous debt that we owe. He was outside the temple, and all sinners are separated from, from God, no matter how close to the door they may be. The man was healed by the grace of God. His healing was immediate, and he gave evidence to what God had done uh, by walking, leaping, and praising God. By walking, leaping, and praising God. That's all true. And it is an incredible picture of salvation. But, but I think that we need to expand our thinking as we look at this, because it could be that maybe the, the, uh, the intent of this is not so much to give us a picture of something else, how people get saved, and certainly an incredible picture. But it could be that God uh, is having this recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted this to be recorded as the first miracle after Pentecost, not so much to give us a picture of salvation, but to communicate that even after Jesus has gone back to heaven, that God still wants to bring healing into people's lives. And it could be that God wants to communicate that he wants his children not just to do better in their situation, in their condition, 
but maybe God wants to change their situation, change their condition. Does that make sense? And so here's the concern. If we immediately take this and we read it and we turn it into a picture of something else, you know, salvation is a picture of salvation, then here's what's going to happen. We'll stop believing that God wants to change our current situation as we turn it into just a message about salvation. When we turn it into something else, uh, we might look at our condition and we might just say, well, I guess it's just God's will. I guess it's just God's will that I'm in this condition. Certainly God changed this man's spiritual condition. He's praising God. He's leaping. uh, But the truth is God changed his physical condition. God wanted to heal him physically. So far so good? So in verse 6, what we notice, uh, it says, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene walk. What we notice, and I want you to write this down, Peter doesn't pray, he speaks the name of Jesus. He speaks the name of Jesus. He doesn't stop and say, let's gather everybody and let's pray for this person. He just speaks the name of Jesus. And we'll talk about that a little bit more a little bit later. One more thing. It says, uh, says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to thee. That's the translation I memorized it in. Um, There are denominations that take this and then they teach that the apostles somehow made a vow of poverty, that they were poor because it says silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to thee. Well, um, nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, what we saw in the last chapter, chapter 2, as the Holy Spirit is given, the result of that is there's an overwhelming generosity given to the early church to the extent that they were able to feed and house 3,000 plus people for a period of time. It, it was this overwhelming generosity. In the next chapter, now our story goes chapters 3 and 4, but at the end of chapter 4, what we see is there are those who are overwhelmingly generous giving to what it is that God is doing. In chapter 5, the, the story of people supplying the needs for the church as the church goes forward continues on. In Acts chapter 6, the ministry has grown to the place where they have to actually hire staff to oversee some ministries. One of the ministries that they're overseeing is a feeding ministry where the church is having to buy food, I would say by the truckload or the chariot load, in order to feed the number of people that, that need that. There was an overwhelming response of generosity. So, so you don't want to, the, the fact that they're walking to the temple on this day, and uh, the point that the Holy Spirit wants to make is that he wants to heal them, not just help him in his condition. So, you know, we're just going to the temple, we're not carrying any cash, doesn't mean that they are poor. If you were to come to me on any day and say, hey, Pastor Dan, do you, do you have five bucks, ten bucks? I never carry cash, ever. It doesn't mean that I'm poor because I don't carry cash. Having 12 kids makes me poor, but, but that doesn't make me poor. So, and, and many of us are that way. We, just because we're not carrying cash doesn't mean that we are poor. 
Well, um, verse 9, it goes on and it says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit in the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what, God, at what had happened to him. Now what we're going to see here is that this miracle does not create faith in God. It does cause the people to be curious. The Bible teaches that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so now they're curious, Peter's now going to give the word of God. So verse 12, it says, and Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own, my translation says power or piety, however your Bible says it, most of your Bibles will say godliness. How many of your Bibles say godliness? Yeah, I like that translation better, has made him well. Very quickly, Peter opens up this conversation, and uh, Peter recognizes two things. Please write these down. First of all, it's not Peter's power, and it's not his godliness. It's not Peter's power, and it's not his godliness. Peter says, listen guys, it's not my godliness. I'm, I'm not that spiritual. Uh, there's something in our nature that wants other people to think that we are more spiritual than we are. I don't try to make you think that I'm more spiritual than I am because truthfully I think you're on to me but I would tell you beware of people who always want to make you think that they are more spiritual. So Peter says it's not my godliness it's just that God is using me. So go ahead and write this down. Peter's point is it's not the instrument. It's not the instrument. It's something God wants to do. If uh, somebody um, is, is a brain surgeon and they have a scalpel and with that scalpel they do this incredible brain surgery, we wouldn't gather around the scalpel and say, you are so amazing. You're just so incredible as a scalpel. You know, it, it's, it's really not the scalpel, it's, it's the brain surgeon. You know, so, so it's, it's not. And Peter recognizes that. One verse I did put on your outline, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise given to graven images. Peter always points to the Lord. He doesn't point to himself. The fastest way to get, to get sidetracked or, or, or to be shelved in ministry is to think it has to do with you. Well, verses 13 and 15, it says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his... Now, my translation says servant. How many of your Bibles say son? Good. That, I've made a note in my Bible, and I've just written son, uh, because the word can be translated both ways, but it's the son. It's the son. Uh, son Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And we saw that story when we were in Matthew that Pilate wanted to release, re- release Jesus. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. In verse 15, and you put to death the prince of life, um, we'll talk about that, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. There, there on your outline, um, I put verse 13, just from the King James, just so you'd see it. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his son, Jesus. That's a much better translation than his servant, Jesus. And then in verse 15, um, in my translation, it says, it says, uh, you put to death the prince of life, but I like the NIV translation better. It says he's the author of life. And I think that that communicates a little bit clearly what, what's actually taking place. So verse 16, it says, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus, and I've underlined that both times, uh, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know 
and the faith which comes through him has given him, and I've underlined, in my translation it says, perfect health in the presence of you all. One of the things that I notice is Peter keeps going back to emphasizing this man's physical healing, not his spiritual rebirth. God has actually healed this man, and that's the point. And, uh, but what, what I, I appreciate that Peter does here, and it's something that Jesus talked about a great deal in his ministry, which is something that in our camp of church we tend to shy away from. And I don't think that helps us. Uh, he says there, and I put it there on your outline, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and now was made strong. The word there is anoma in Greek, and it means name, but there on your outline you see the little definition. It also means authority. Do you see that? It's the authority of his name that he has given to us to use. And that has made him perfectly whole because someone used the authority of the name of Jesus which he gave us to use to do his work on the earth. My question to you, even as prayer warriors, when was the last time you just said, in the name of Jesus, I say, be well. In the name of Jesus, I say. And that's what we're going to see all through the book of Acts. Typically, what we see in our camp of church, we don't take the name of Jesus and use the name of Jesus. We say, I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it. And uh, it might be one of the reasons that we're not seeing some of the things that, that the Lord might want us to see. Does that make sense? So write this down. It's not the instrument. It's the authority of his spoken name. He spoke it. He spoke it. Verse 17, he says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. Um, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouths of, or the mouth of all the prophets, I've underlined all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing from the presence, that refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I, I love that because Peter is very gracious. Um, you remember when Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so here, Peter says, I know you acted in ignorance, even though this is what you did to the, to the author of life, the prince of life. But um, one of the things that I, I felt would be important to just highlight very quickly as we move through is that Peter, in verse 19, tells them to repent and return. It's just like he did in the last chapter. But one of the things that we find in this gospel presentation that Peter gives, there's one word that won't be mentioned, and it's the word baptism. And you want to write that down. And the reason for that is that we are baptized not to get saved. We are baptized because we are saved. And so uh, he, he's always uh, very, um, you know, Peter recognizes that. But in verse 18, we underlined, and it says, Peter references that Jesus came to the earth 
and he died on the cross, and that fulfilled what the prophets had spoken of beforehand throughout, throughout the entire Old Testament. And, and uh, Peter here takes those very literally. It had to happen just as the Bible said. So now we come to verse 20 and 21. He said it had to happen as it said in the past about his first appearing, but then we're going to notice what, Jesus, uh, what Peter says about his next appearing. It says, then he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. And I've underlined all of verse 21. Very important. Whom heaven must receive. Jesus went back to heaven. Until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. From ancient time. And I I put that verse on your outline from the NIV. It's a little bit clearer And I want you to underline something, that he might send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. And I've underlined verse 21, it says, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Jesus must remain in heaven until it's time for him to restore all things, the things that were spoken of in the Old Testament by the holy prophets. So a couple of things please write down. First of all, this crowd is completely Jewish. He's speaking to Jewish people. They have an amazing command of the Old Testament. They know. They know what the Old Testament prophets had said. And uh, this restoration was proclaimed by the Old Testament prophets. I always put OT for Old, for Old Testament. So, you will remember, as we've been studying through the book of Acts, it was in the very first chapter of the book of Acts. Jesus is there with the apostles, and he's telling them that they're going to receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And uh, their question to him was this, and I put verse, chapter 1, verse 6 on your outline. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Very, very specifically, you're restoring the kingdom to Israel. They knew what the Old Testament prophets said, that one day in the last days, Israel would be restored to its place of prominence in the world. The reason that they said that was because about 700 years before, in the prophet Hosea, notice this verse, and you want to underline a couple of things. It comes from this. Also, O Judah, underline that. There is a harvest appointed for you, God is speaking, when I restore the fortunes of my people. When it says, O Judah, that's very specific. That's the nation of Israel. And it says in the Old Testament that he's going to restore his people, uh, their fortunes. So Israel's going to have a very uh, large prominence there in the last days. That hasn't happened yet. But the apostles said, is this the time? You and I are living in the time where we are seeing the beginning of that take place. Israel did not exist as a nation for almost 2,000 years. It's the only planet on the nation in the history of the world that did not exist for 2,000 years and then became a nation again. And that was 70, almost 71 years ago. And uh, it's never happened before. But what we're seeing is that this is beginning to take place. Now, 
it's, it's still the early stages. It has not taken place yet, but it tells us the time period that we're living in. Many people look at the prophecies of the end times and they say, well, you can't understand those. Those are allegorical, they're mystical, they're spiritual teachings, but they're, they're not something that you can really expect to happen literally. As you read this, Peter holds that this is going to take place exactly as the prophets have said. It's not allegorical, and, and he says it's, it's going to happen just as the prophets have said. That makes sense? Okay, so uh, write this down. Jesus will be in heaven until the restoration, until the restoration. And it begins with the second coming. So what takes place is you have the rapture of the church. Church goes up, seven years of tribulation. Jesus comes back at the second coming and restores Israel, and it's called the millennial reign. And the Bible speaks a lot about that for a thousand years. Well, let's just read a a little bit more of Peter's sermon And it says, I'm not going to give much comment here as we go. Uh, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Speaking of Jesus. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with the Father, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These are all Jewish people here. They were part of that Old Testament covenant. The church has not become Gentile at this point. For you first, God raised up his servant, or son, some of your Bibles will say, sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now this is Peter is going on in his sermon, and at this point, Peter is interrupted. And so if you look at verse chapter 4, verse 1, it continues, the story continues, says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, and uh, ultimately they're going to be taken, and we're going to talk about that next week. This story takes two two chapters. Did you find that interesting today? So the purpose of this miracle today, although it's a great picture, we would say, of salvation, the purpose of this miracle isn't, first of all, to be a picture of something else. It's to let us know that God, even after Jesus goes back to heaven, still wants to heal today. And I would suggest that he still wants to heal in every area of our life, whether that's in relationships, finances, it can be in, in, uh, in, in, in our bodies. But if, if we turn it into it's just a picture of salvation, we'll stop believing that God wants to heal today. And, and uh, I think what we'll also see is we'll stop taking the name of Jesus and speaking to as we see the apostles. So in the Bible, as we saw, It says, let them continually say, the Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servant. We call him Father God because he's our father. How many of you want for your children 
to go through just difficulty after difficulty after difficulty, relationship failure, disease, financial tragedies, or as a parent, were you kind of hoping they'd do a little bit better than you did? Do you know why you feel that way? Because you are created in the image of God. So let's make sure, let's make sure that we're not so clouded by our denominational thinking, sometimes baggage, that we forget that God really does want to do some things today as he's done in the past. And we'll pick that up next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for being the God who delights in the prosperity of his servant. Lord, you delight when we do well, just like we delight when we see our kids win, when we see our kids flourish, when we see our kids growing and developing. And uh, thank you for being a God who wants the very best for us. And help us to think like you think as we go forward. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.